собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. This week's podcast is a talk by Elizabeth McGuire. It's titled Communist Neverland, New Research on a Russian International Children's Home, 1933-1991. The talk was given as part of the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies fall series, We Shall Refashion Life on Earth. Youth in Eurasia and Beyond. From 1933 to 1991, Communist Party leaders from all over the world, including Mao Zedong, Eugene Dennis, Josep Bronze Tito, and many more from Latin America to Africa to the Middle East to the Far East, sent their children to be educated in a single boarding school in Ivanova, Russia. They were raised linguistically and culturally as Russians, often forgetting their native tongue. Many continue to feel enormous affection and nostalgia for the place they considered their true home and travel across continents to attend reunions every five years. Based on archival documents, the school's own private archive, and dozens of interviews with alumni across the world, Communist Neverland is a tale of this remarkable school, which tells a new story about the people who dedicated their lives to world revolution. Elizabeth McGuire is an assistant professor of history at California State East Bay, where she specializes in global communism, specifically the relationship between modern Russia and China. She's the author of Red at Heart, How Chinese Communists Fell in Love with the Russian Revolution, published by Oxford University Press. Her new research focuses on the International Children's Home from 1933 to 1991. Here's Elizabeth McGuire. This title is the title of what I'm hoping will be a second book. Um, but I'm hoping it will be more, I'm hoping it will be an academic monograph, sort of like Red at Heart, but a little bit crossover to a popular audience. But I'm also hoping to put it in different forms that appeal to young people. So maybe three different, I would say, products of this research, um, which I will explain. But this is the title of the book and also probably the title of at least one of the projects. Um, now, I'm just going to say a few words about my first book because it just came out in November of 17 um, with Oxford University Press. Let's see, how do I... They changed the title. It was originally supposed to be Sino-Soviet Romance, How Chinese Communists Fell in Love with the Russian Revolution. And I am so glad they came up with that because no one knows even anymore that Sino is China and Soviet is Russia, right? Read at heart so much better. And this book focused on basically people who do Sino-Soviet history 
they tend to focus on like Mao and Stalin and like ideological battles and sort of high politics. I mean, I've been to conferences in places like Shanghai where there's like an hour long debate over whether some telegram happened on May 21st or May 22nd, you know? And I, for different reasons, I was a Russian history major and I happened to take a Chinese history class when I was getting a master's degree at Johns Hopkins Sice School of Advanced International Studies because you had to take distribution requirement. And so the class was called Grassroots China and it was very present based, but they did this little historical overview and I was just freaking out because I was like, oh, this is so Soviet. You know, even just the way the documentaries that we watched looked and just the history itself, what they did, the collectivization. I guess maybe in my mind I knew that, but being presented with it sort of in a more up-close version, I just had a complete fit. And I got very interested in it. Um, and I very much read it, wanted to write a dissertation about it because I knew I wanted to get a PhD after that. I actually worked for 10 years in Washington, D.C., um, and in the private sector doing sort of Russian-American international analysis stuff. Um, so I knew I wanted to get a PhD at that point, um, but I really wanted to apply as a dual person, Russia and China, but I obviously didn't know Chinese and I didn't know if I could learn it. So I just applied to Berkeley, right, as a, as a Russianist. Um, and then gradually in my first year, I just started asking, you know, I'm kind of interested in this Russian Chinese thing. And to my surprise, they were really encouraging. And I was already 30 years old. And, and Chinese people will tell you that's too old to learn Chinese. Um, I learned Chinese. Um, it was worse than doing archival research in Russia. It was very difficult. Um, but in the end, I found kind of the story that I was I didn't know exactly what story I was looking for. I just knew I was looking for a story that I got. Like, how did communism really go from Russia to China? I mean, it's not like it could really fly through the air, right? It's not like some Leninist tract just like dropped down from the sky and everybody read it and was convinced and then just set out on some revolution, right? It, there had to be some human mechanism of transition. So. I kind of went looking for that and I found way more, let's just say. At first I thought I was gonna be looking at this group of Chinese students who went to the Soviet Union in the 1920s to study. They had these special schools. Some of the students in these schools were as young as 14. And the schools were all about how to foment a revolution. Imagine going to school where the curriculum is literally, I found these lectures like, okay, here's how you withstand torture. Here's how what to do if you're arrested. Here's how to run an underground printing press, you know? So, and these old Bolshevik giving these like talks about like, well, you know, this is what my jailer was like. And they actually had a museum called um, Prison and Torture or something. Um, and it was about czarist prisons and they took the kids there and the kids just loved it. Like, you know, there are these reports. So these Chinese kids. Okay, so that's what I thought I was going to write about. But then, which I did write about that, but then what I found um, was this other really interesting thing, which was these Chinese, when they went to the Soviet Union to study, I mean, they were like foreign exchange students, right? Like some of you guys have been or will be foreign exchange students, right, in some foreign country. 
you're sort of off in this different environment. You know, it's like kind of generally just romantic, right? You feel like you're on this adventure. You're out of your ordinary context. And so, um, you know, it's a natural place to kind of fall in love, even if just for three months or sometimes a lifetime. Um, So my focus was on, so I found an incredible amount of material, not only like memoirs, but in the archives. The Soviets were completely obsessed with these poor kids' love lives. Like they, they actually, the party cells sat down and had these long meetings about who was sleeping with who and what to do about it and which relationships were okay and why and on and on. So just to give a couple quick examples um, that are real kind of fun. Probably if I asked you to guess who that guy was, you wouldn't guess in a million years. Um, But he turned out to be the president of Taiwan, um, Chiang Kai-shek, like this, you know, most anti-communist dude of all time. He had this little red period in the 1920s where he was actually kind of pro, he was interested in communism. And he sent his son to Moscow. And then his son ended up staying there for 12 years. Um, and he ended up experience. He like went and collectivized a, a village. He worked in um, this um, factory that made the material for the Moscow Metro. Like he had the full. He was about to be purged, and then his dad finally came along and made the United Front deal with Stalin. And part of that was Stalin gave him his son back. So in the meantime. Um, you can see he meets this Belarusian woman, Faina Vakhrova, and they got married. And when he came time back to go to China, he brought her. You can see their children. I always joke that, um, you know, there's China and there's Russia, and then there's the two revolutions that they, because, you know, the Nationalist Revolution lost, right, and went to Taiwan, but it aimed to be a revolution. And then the communist revolution, I always just joke, like, you know, Russia, China, and the two revolutions they gave birth to. Um, And here's another really wonderful example. Um, This woman, Lisa Kishkina, she was the daughter of a Russian nobleman, you know, very, she spoke French and had had a hard time under the communists, right, who wanted to repress people with noble origins. Um, But she just met this guy. She had no idea who he was. He, like, she went to the Far East because a lot of young people did that. It was sort of an adventure thing. Um, and then she started kind of hanging in these Chinese circles. She ended up working at this publisher that was like a Chinese kind of emigre thing, but the Soviets wanted their people in it, so she worked there. Um, so she kind of fell in with Chinese people and sort of liked them. And then she came back to Moscow, so she still like hung around with Chinese. She just like went to parties. I mean, just like young people everywhere, really. So she goes to these parties and she meets this guy and obviously he goes crazy over her, but you can kind of see why, like, look at her. You can even tell from her picture, you know, she's not just pretty. She's also a wonderful person. I happen to know that personally. Um, So they fall in love and it turns out that he's Lili San, who was the Communist Party chairman before Mao and who was like one of the most famous labor agitators of all time. Um, So, you know, they go back and he takes a high position in the government and she becomes the Chinese teacher to Mao's wife, who was the most, she was the, that was Jiang Qing, who, um, you know, sent so many people to their death in the, she's called the white bone dragon um, during the Cultural Revolution, which was a super repressive period in China, um, Chinese communism. She was like the architect of this massive, horrific, repressive campaign. 
But no one knew that, you know, in the 50s when Lisa would go to her house and, and tutor her in Russian. Um, okay, so there you can see Lisa um, in Moscow. Right there, she is with her family just before the Cultural Revolution. During the Cultural Revolution, uh, people, anyone who had ties to Russia was particularly targeted. And they killed her husband. And they imprisoned her in solitary confinement for eight years. Eight years solitary confinement. She survived. She got out. And her daughter was trying to figure out a way to like bring her back to life. I mean, she was based, she got out, but she was like a non-person. And they wouldn't even let her go back to Beijing. They made her stay in some village. So her daughter did this thing. Her daughter, she'd had a son, Pavlik. And she sent Pavlik to Lisa, to the village, for Lisa to take care of. Which, if you think about it, sending your son to, like, your mom, who's been in solitary for eight years, is a little risky. But they formed this wonderful relationship. Lisa, I think she was born, she lived 101 years. She died in, you know, I want to say, like, 20... Okay, she was born, like, a few years before 1917. So anyway, she died in 2015 or something. Anyway, I did a lot of uh, research for this first book. I had to not only sit in archives, but also meet people and do lots of, you're doing the multi-generational oral interviews, right? I had to do, a, I think I did about 50 oral interviews and sometimes like the same person three times and often with their whole family there. And um, Okay. <clears throat> Here's the thing though. And this is what I want to really kind of focus on the rest of the time here. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Right, like, I think when you're in a classroom or you're in a scholarly setting, it's almost like you walk in and you leave your whole self behind. You're supposed to be just like a mind doing what you're doing. And then the products of scholarly research tend to reflect that, right? It's like, you read this stuff and it's all making an argument or it's, and, and there's the human part of the person who's doing the research seems to go away. Um, and I try very hard, or I don't, I don't want that to be true. Or for me, it doesn't ring true, put it that way. So it so happens, as I'm doing the research for Sino-Soviet, the, the Red at Heart book, that I discover that when the Chinese are in Moscow having all of their love affairs and they're having babies, okay, the women are having babies. Sometimes it's the Russian women who are having the affairs, you know, like, there was one notorious case of a cafeteria worker named Tasya, <laughs> you know, who kept hooking up with the Chinese guys and got in trouble for it. And, you know, so sometimes they're Russian women and the children are, you know, Russian Chinese, as you saw with um, Lisa and her daughter, Ina. Um, sometimes they're just Chinese. So sometimes it's just the Chinese students hooking up with each other. And a lot of times they had spouses back home. These were extramarital affairs. And plus, remember, they're also at the time being trained in how to foment a revolution and withstand torture so that they can go back to China and foment a revolution and withstand torture. But yet they're having babies and they're aborting babies so much that actually they bring in Lenin's wife, Lenin's wife, to talk to the girls and say, OK, you know what, it's OK to fall in love, but you know what, just, just keep your babies. We'll raise them for you. We'll, we'll, we'll raise them for you. And the, the rector of one of the schools where a lot of the Chinese were said, joked. And he's like, oh, we'll just build a baby home for your kids. Well, guess what they did? 
they actually, and the Russians, you know, it wasn't only the Chinese learning revolution, right? It was everybody from all over the world, Hmong, who were, you know, in Moscow learning revolution and having kind of similar experiences, right? So there's all these babies. And then there's also this phenomenon. If you're German in 1933, when Hitler comes to power and you are a communist and you are one of the only people in Nazi Germany willing to, you know, engage in anti-Nazi propaganda and activity, you're in a freaking lot of danger, aren't you? Like, you know, if you get arrested and what if you have a family? So they, the Russians envisioned this entire network of homes and they weren't exactly orphanages, but some, but they were designed to take care of children who had been orphaned by revolution. And they weren't exactly uh, elite schools be, where like leaders would send their kids, you know, they became there. In reality, it was a mishmash of both, you know, lots of famous. I'll get into that. Basically, anyone who was anyone, anyone who was anyone in international communism sent their kid to this school, but they mixed with ordinary orphans of rank and file communists whose you know parents were dead. So here's a picture of like a bumper crop of Chinese babies who were born to these Chinese revolutionaries just in like the space of like a couple years. And they indeed open this children's home. Um, and here's a picture of they gathered them and, you know, put them under, that's Stalin, Father Stalin. Um, and in my first book I did, so originally I thought I was gonna also tell the history of this home in this first book, but as I researched this home, I realized it was way too big and interesting to fit you know, it'd be like trying to put an elephant inside a, you know, or a whale inside of elephant or whatever. It just wasn't going to work. It was too. Um, so you can see, I just put a little screenshot. Sino-Soviet love children. There's just like one chapter in there and they sort of figure a little bit, but only the Chinese ones. Okay. So once I find out about this school, right, I'm so fascinated and I start researching it. And it turns out that even though the Soviets had planned this giant network of schools, in the end, there was one. I mean, they had different little ones for different nationalities, like they had one for Germans or whatever, but they were short-lived, they closed. This one survived. It's the only one that survived. And so here is a picture um, of a, from a photo album about the opening of the school. And so this is actually a photo album that the children who were there at the time made. So the children were constantly engaged in creating images and stories about themselves and where they lived in their past. So they made these photo albums. And you can see, you know, here's this arrow and it says like, this way to the construction site or whatever. And here they are breaking ground. The school is six hours outside of Moscow um, in, a town called Ivanova. If you could really just drive there quickly, it wouldn't take six hours, but it takes six hours. So there they are building it. And then there's what it looks like. It opens in 1933. That's a picture from 1933. And the Soviets have this, you know, grandiose idea of what this school is going to be. It's going to like raise this. First of all, it's supposed to be the first in a giant network to raise the youth of the future international revolution. Um, Here's a picture. So the name of the school was the Internationalny Dom Unistasova, 
which means the International Children's Home named after this woman, Stasova, who was a very old Bolshevik, meaning she had been a revolutionary forever and ever. She was a close friend of Lenin. And so she founded this school. It was like her. But this is the only time she visited it. She visited once, but she protected it in different ways over time. Now, ultimately, this is a map of where the students ended up coming from all over the world. So it's kind of an interesting map, right? Because it's like all roads lead to Moscow. Um, but if you look at it, I mean, there's almost no region, no place on earth. I guess maybe Australia. There's no Australians. Um, but even the United States. So it's very much this like little tiny global microcosm of where Russian and on top of that provincial Russians, right? Like these are people in Ivanova who are actually employed by the school. They don't know anything about anything. They're just like a bunch of Russian ladies, you know, and, and, and local like schoolmasters or whatever that they, you know. So it's like, it's like internationalism coming into contact with Russian provincialism. And you know what? It was a beautiful thing. Like, you think it's a disaster. In many ways, it was a disaster. But I think in today's world, both in the United States and in Russia, where it seems like notions of international cooperation, understanding, caring are gone, I think it's noteworthy that this school was operating, you know, at the peak of Stalinism, and it remained open. And it even took in children whose parents had been purged, and they just renamed them in the, par in the roles of the school so that no one knew. they just go get them, you know? I think it's just important to remember, you know, I know that many people have sort of lost hope <laughs> these days in the United States, um, and, and people lo lose hope about Russia. Um, but I think at this school, it's important to remember that that you know, impulse towards internationalism, cooperation, and care, it lives on always, you know, and it will reemerge. Just so that, again, to, to, to belabor the point a little bit, there were 800 children in the school before World War II, um, and those are the nationalities. So you can see that, you know, yeah, there's a couple big chunks. The big chunks, the biggest one, the blue are Chinese. Um, the red are Russians, but the thing to understand about those is that they were short-lived, like they'd pass through the school and stay for a year. I think the average length of stay for a Chinese student there, the average was six years. Some of them spent their whole childhood there. And then the next one is Germans. And again, for them, the average years is really high. Um, so you can see, I mean, geez, you know, there's Turks, Dutch, Brazilians, Japanese. I mean, you know, it just, there's basically nobody who wasn't there. All right, now here's the kicker. It's still open. The school didn't collapse or die when the Soviet Union did. So today it's a Russian orphanage, but the institution itself lives, and it's very interested in preserving its heritage. And it has, it still celebrates all of the old communist um, holidays, you know. And they have a, you know, May 1st holiday, and they always have, a parade, and there are the orphans um, marching through the city with their, you know, flags or now Russian flags or whatever. But there are there they are. Um, and on top of that, <clears throat> when I discovered that it was still open, and they had a reunion in 2003. So when I was still doing my research for my book, 
I found out they had, were having a reunion. So I just showed up, like took the bus to Ivanova, like found the place and just like came to the reunion. I was interested in meeting the Chinese, right? Because I knew I was writing that book. So here I am like wandering around this reunion where I know no one, have no contacts. And I see someone who looks kind of Asian. I'm like, are you Chinese, you know? Um, <clears throat> so of course they all speak Russian because, you know, they're raised in the school. Um, so I go to the reunion, and at the reunion, I find out that the school still has some, at least, of its historical records. Um, but the funny thing is, since it's still operating as a Russian orphanage, you know how schools are, right? Like, okay, the current information they have, but like, so they had a bunch of historical information in this room, but the room was the room of this very sweet woman. I don't think I have a picture of her in here, but whose job was basically emotionally caring for the children. So like the historical documents were just stuck between like toys and glasses of juice. And I mean, it was total chaos. There was no organization. I'm like, oh my God, you have the mother load of historical treasure trove here and you, you might spill juice on it. So while I was doing my research, like I would occasionally disappear for, you know, a couple months and I would go and live in this museum in Ivanova, in the, never mind, I slept on the couch in a museum um, and just went to the school and cleaned up the room. I'm like, Sophie Ivanovna, the nice caring lady, you know, why don't you let me clean the room? And she's like, all right, fine, you know. And so pretty soon I became this kind of like bizarre character, right? Because here I am, you know, this American, first of all, they never had an American show up whatsoever except you know, the kids who were American commie kids. But the idea to them that some American was interested in this was just anathema. And never mind, you know, I was getting a PhD, but I was like washing the floor. And they'd actually come to see this, you know, phenomenon of this woman, like, they thought I was nuts. But having worked in an archive, I knew how the archives were organized. I'm like, Sophie Ivanovna, she was a former Komsomol member, so she was like, she was she was maybe 60 or something, but she'd been in the communist youth organization. So she was like super sweet and enthusiastic. I'm like, Sofia Ivanovna, we're gonna make an archive. So I started to like organize all the materials that were there. I made her fondi and OPC. And it was a good thing too, because at some point the um, local archive showed up and wanted to take it over. And Sofia Ivanovna was able to say no. And they said, yeah, but how are you going to preserve the materials? And she was like, look. And they didn't take them. Um, so there's me with this sweet little boy named Vova, um, who, so keep in mind this whole time I want to have a baby, right? Now I'm working in an orphanage. Now, I can't tell you, I'm, I'll cry now even thinking about it, how many days I left and like trudged back to my bus and my museum crying, you know, just crying. I wanted to adopt that boy. You know, he was little and he had no, you know, he had no motive or anything. He was just sweet and he would come in. What I was doing is digitizing. I was taking photographs of all the material because I was afraid, you know, okay, I can organize it, but the minute I leave, God knows what's going to happen. And I was sharing the digital with them. I actually gave them my old computer and so I was digitizing and he would just come for like hours and hold the pages down for me so that I could take the pictures. And, but the trouble was, you know, I wasn't ready to be the mom of a, you know, he was, he looks little, but he was like eight. He's little because he had a very tough life. Um, 
And so, well, he grew up while I was doing this research, right? I can't remember. Maybe he was five, and then he was eight, and then in the end he was a teenager. And I wasn't ready. I couldn't, oh, it was awful. It was wonderful. It was, it was one of the most profound experiences of my entire life. And so that place became sort of almost like a, I don't know, well, a neverland. It became a neverland for me. Um, to the point where I started dragging my family. Um, and they then had this little museum room where they had pictures, and so that's where that is. Um, okay, so just to sort of, without um, going too far into, since I've talked 28 minutes, so I'm gonna go through this kind of quickly so that I can get to the, the bottom line here. Um, they kept track of the students who came and went in roll books like this. Here's, you know, they had these picture albums. They had numerous of them. Here's the, you know, little collage of students first arriving. Um, the location was picked because it was the estate of a former nobleman. And the revolutionaries had seized this statue of Mercury, who's the god of trade, and put it in a fountain for the kids. So I always joke, you know, they captured the, they captured the god of trade and gave it to the children of the World Revolution. Someone stole the god of trade. So after, actually after the Soviet Union collapsed, I'm not kidding, someone stole the god of trade because he was valuable. Everyone was upset, so they commissioned a new one, but it looks like that. Look, everyone looks kind of confused, like what? Uh, in the 30s, someone got the idea of uh, shooting some bear, or no, not shooting, first capturing some bear cubs to give the children to play with. So the children played with the bear cubs. And I was interviewing someone, but I didn't know they were at first alive. I had just seen this picture, so I kept asking all the people I was interviewing, like, what about the bears? What about the bears? They're like, we don't know. Finally, one super old guy said, oh, when I asked him about the bears, he, I wasn't showing the picture, and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, we played with the bears, you know, but then they shot them. I'm like, they shot them? Well, they got too big to play with, so they shot and stuffed the bears and put them outside the school. Um, so I'm just trying to give you an idea of, like, the wonderful, crazy, you know, they made all these photo albums of like, what do we do every day? We get up, we sleep, we take our nap, we, you know, it's just a, a treasure trove of, um, you know, we play music, we, you know, what don't we do? You know, here we are in the shower, you know. Um, hobbies were a big deal, just like they were all over the Soviet Union. Um, I'll just say very briefly, so here's a picture of the coach. This guy, his name is Yura Huang Jian, he's a Chinese guy. Um, there he is with the coach winning the race. Um, his dad was a friend of Zhou Enlai, who was one of the you know big time leaders of the you know Chinese Communist Party. And Zhou Enlai visited the school because Mao's kids were there. Um, and one of those is Mao's son, and everyone says it's this one, but I really think it's that one. Um, and the, and my little runner's dad had helped Zhou escape for at some point from the Nationalist Police. And so Joe was particularly interested in this kid, and he sort of encouraged him in his athletic endeavors. This kid, Yura, was like the dumb jock, and everyone made fun of him. And then Joe, this big leader, shows up, and is like, no, you go with that. I actually had to run from the police, and it was a good thing I could run, really. And then there, um, this kid grows up to become an Olympic trainer of high jumpers and, and athletes. And Joe, there he is, comes to his matches all the time, so much so that there's even a propaganda picture of Joe coming to the matches. 
Um, and there's Yura. He ends up training in the 1950s, the first Chinese to ever break a world record. That's her in the high jump. Um, when Beijing had the Olympics, they tried to pick people to carry the flag who were symbolic of things, and she's the one last on the left. So there's just, I mean, the stories are endless like that. Um, here is Mao's son, and he became best friends with this kid, Fritz, who I'll tell you about. You know, there's all those pictures. There's a Czech woman and a Chinese guy rolling in the snow. Mao fell in love with the daughter of a Brazilian communist, Fernanda, and she didn't love him back, and it became this big thing. And then I found out she was still alive in Brazil, so I wrote to her. I'm like, hey, you know, how come you didn't know I wrote to her? This is a really nice letter. But the bottom line was, well, why didn't you love him back? And she wrote me back. I still have it. It's this little letter. And she says, my heart belonged to another. Um, here's the leader of the Chinese Communist Party in the 1930s. There's his kid. Um, they dropped him off in the home for like a little time. And they thought they'd come back and get him in a year or two. And when they came back, he was so pissed at them that they'd left him in the home that he refused to leave. Like he'd found his, you know, nice, he liked his life there. And on top of that, he changed his name. He refused to leave. And he changed his name to the name of the head of the school. So he named himself Timur Timofievich Makarov, which is the name of the guy in the school. Now, the plot thickens. They still, at these reunions, the alumni actually come. So the Chinese in mass came during the SARS crisis. They managed to get out. Here's a bunch of people from Latin America. They have these raucous reunions every five years. They also have every year roving parties. So they pick a place in the world the, where somebody's from, and they just throw a big party, and they arrange it all like the trip, and people can opt in or out. They just pay. And So this is one in Stockholm, and I just like went. They basically just drink for three days and it was super fun. You know, it's like fun research, but it's also fascinating, right? Like insanely interesting. Um, just as a side note, at some point they were gonna close the school. The local government was eyeing the land. They're like, ooh, this is really good. We wanna develop the land. Well, the international alumni went on this giant, you know, campaign. They were pissed. This is like, this is our homeland. You cannot do this. But what did it in the end is the orphans went on a hunger strike. Like today's orphans, they just wouldn't eat. And finally, Putin, like, he didn't visit the school. They went to Moscow, and he had, like, an audience with them. And he took the school off the local budget and put it in this special place in the federal government so that no one could touch it. That was Elizabeth McGuire, an assistant professor of history at California State East Bay, where she specializes in global communism specifically the relationship between modern Russia and China. She's the author of Red at Heart, How Chinese Communists Fell in Love with the Russian Revolution, published by Oxford University Press. Her new research focuses on the International Children's Home from 1933 to 1991. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. 
Thanks to all my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seanrushablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. <laughs>